0: Now, Mr. Jeffries and other managers also suggested that the Trump administration took the approach of no negotiation, blanket refusal, and no attempt to accommodate. That's also not true. In the October 8th letter that Mr. Cipollone sent to Speaker Pelosi, it said explicitly, quote, if the committees wish to return to the regular order of oversight requests, we stand ready to engage in that process as we have in the past, in a manner consistent with well-established bipartisan constitutional protections and a respect for the separation of powers enshrined in the Constitution, end quote. It was Manager Schiff and his committees that did not want to engage in any accommodation process. We had said that we were willing to explore that. The House managers have also asserted a number of times, this came up on that first long night when we were here until 2 as well, that the Trump administration never asserted executive privilege. Never asserted executive privilege. And I explained at the time, that's technically true but misleading. Misleading because the rationale on which the subpoenas were resisted never depended on an assertion of executive privilege. Each of the rationales that we have offered, and I'll go into the one of them today, that the House House subpoenas were not authorized, does not depend on making that formal assertion of executive privilege. It's a different legal rationale. The subpoenas weren't authorized because there was no vote, or the subpoenas were to senior advisors to the President who are immune from congressional compulsion, or the subpoenas were forcing executive branch officials to testify without the presence of agency counsel, which is a separate legal infirmity, again supported by an opinion from the Office of Legal Counsel at the Department of Justice. But let me turn to the specific issue of the invalidity of the subpoenas because they weren't supported by a vote of the House authorizing Manager Schiff's committees to exercise the power of impeachment to issue compulsory process. Manager Jeffries said, that there were no Supreme Court precedents suggesting such a requirement and that every investigation into a presidential impeachment in history has begun without a vote from the House. And those statements simply aren't accurate. There is Supreme Court precedent explaining very clearly the principle that a committee of either House of Congress gets its authority only by a resolution from the parent body, United States versus Rumley and Watkins versus United States make this very clear. And it's common sense. The Constitution assigns the sole power of impeachment to the House of Representatives, to the House, not to any member, not to a subcommittee. And that authority can be delegated to a committee to use only by a vote of the House. It would be the same here in the Senate. The Senate has the sole power to try impeachments. But if there were no rules that had been adopted by the Senate, would you think that the majority leader himself could simply decide that he would have a committee receive evidence, handle that, submit a recommendation to the Senate, and that would be the way that the trial would occur without a vote from the Senate to give authority to that committee. I don't think so. It doesn't make sense. That's not the way the Constitution assigns that authority. And it's the same in the House. Here, there was no vote to authorize a committee to exercise the power of impeachment. And this law has been boiled down by the D.C. Circuit in ExxonCorp versus FTC to explain it this way. To issue a valid subpoena, a committee or subcommittee must conform strictly to the resolution establishing its investigatory powers. There must be a resolution voted on by the parent body to give the committee that power. And the problem here is there is no standing rule. There was no standing authority giving Manager Schiff's committee the authority to use the power of impeachment to issue compulsory process. Rule 10 of the House discusses legislative authority, it doesn't mention impeachment. And that is why, in every presidential impeachment in history, the House has initiated the inquiry by voting to give a committee the authority to pursue that inquiry. So contrary to what Manager Jeffries suggested, there has always been, in every presidential impeachment inquiry, a vote from the full House to authorize a committee, and that is the only way the inquiry begins. There were three different votes for the impeachment of President Andrew Johnson, in January 1867, in March 1867, and in February 1868. For President Nixon, Chairman Rodino of the House Judiciary Committee explained there was a move to have him issue subpoenas after the Saturday Night Massacre and they determined that they did not have that authority in the House Judiciary Committee without a vote from the House. And he determined, as he explained, that a resolution has always been passed by the House. It is a necessary step if we are to meet our obligations. There's been reference to investigatory activities starting in the House Judiciary Committee in the Nixon impeachment Uh, prior to the vote from the House, but all that the committee was doing was assembling publicly available information and information that had been gathered by other congressional committees. There was never an attempt to issue compulsory process until there had been a vote by the House to give the House Judiciary Committee that authority. Similarly, in the Clinton impeachment, there were two votes from the full House to give the House Judiciary Committee authority to proceed. First, a vote on a resolution 525, just to allow the committee to examine the independent counsel report and determine, make recommendations on how to proceed. Then a separate resolution, House Resolution 581, that gave the House Judiciary Committee subpoena authority. And at the time, in a House report, The House Judiciary Committee explained, I'm quoting, because the issue of impeachment is of such overwhelming importance, the committee decided that it must receive authorization from the full House before proceeding on any further course of action. Because impeachment is delegated solely to the House of Representatives by the Constitution, the full House of Representatives should be involved in critical decision-making regarding various stages of impeachment. Here, The House Democrats skipped over that step completely. What they had instead was simply a press conference from Speaker Pelosi announcing that she was directing committees to proceed with an impeachment inquiry against the President of the United States. Speaker Pelosi didn't have the authority to delegate the power of the House to those committees on her own. So why does it matter? It matters because the Constitution places that authority in the House and ensures that there is a democratic check on the exercise of that authority, that there will have to be a vote by the full House before there can be a proceeding to start inquiring into impeaching the President of the United States. One of the things that the framers were most concerned about in impeachment was the potential for a partisan impeachment a partisan impeachment that was being pushed merely by a faction. And a way to ensure a check on that is to require Democratic accountability from the full House to have a vote from the entire House before an inquiry can proceed. That didn't happen here. It was only after five weeks of hearings that the House decided to have a vote. And what that meant at the outset was that all of the subpoenas that were issued under the law the the Supreme Court cases I discussed, all of those subpoenas were invalid. And that is what the Trump administration pointed out specifically to the House. That was the reason for not responding to them. Because under long-settled precedent, there had to be a vote from the House to give authority. And the administration would not respond to subpoenas that were invalid. Now, the next point I'd like to touch on briefly has to do with due process, because we've heard from the House managers that they offered the President due process at the House Judiciary Committee. And Manager Nadler described it as that he sent the President a letter, the President's counsel a letter, offering to allow the President to participate And the President's counsel just refused, as if that was the only exchange. And there was just a blanket refusal to participate. But let me explain what actually happened. And I should should note before I get into those details, there was a suggestion also that due process is not required in the House proceeding, that it's simply a privilege. But that wasn't the position that Manager Nadler has taken in the past. In 2016, he said, quote, the power of impeachment is a solemn responsibility assigned to the House by the Constitution and to this committee by our peers. That responsibility demands a rigorous level of due process. And in the Clinton impeachment in 1998, he explained, what does due process mean? It means, among other things, The right to confront the witnesses against you, to call your own witnesses, and to have the assistance of counsel. Now, I think we all know that all of those rights were denied to the president in the first two rounds of hearings. The first round of secret hearings in uh, the basement bunker, where Manager Schiff had three committees holding hearings, and then in a round of public hearings to take the testimony that had been screened in the basement bunker and have it in a public televised setting, which was totally unprecedented in any presidential impeachment inquiry. In both the Clinton and the Nixon inquiries, for every public hearing, the president was allowed to be present by counsel and cross-examine witnesses. But the House managers say, that's all right, because when we got to the third round of hearings, after people had testified twice, then we were going to allow the president to have some due process. But the way that played out was this. First, they scheduled a hearing for December 4th that was going to hear solely from law professors. And by the time they wanted the president to commit whether he would participate, it was unclear. They couldn't specify how many law professors or who the law professors were going to be. And the president's counsel wrote back and declined to participate in that. But at the same time, Manager Nadler had asked what other rights, under the House Resolution 660, the rules governing the the House inquiry, the President would like to exercise. And the President's counsel wrote back asking specific questions in order to be able to make an informed decision and asked whether you intend to allow fact witnesses to be called including the witnesses who had been requested by HPSI ranking member Nunez, whether you intend to allow members of the Judiciary Committee and the President's Council the right to cross-examine fact witnesses, and whether your Republican colleagues on the Judiciary Committee will be allowed to call witnesses of their choosing. And Manager Nadler didn't respond to that letter. There wasn't information provided, and we had discussions with the staff on the Judiciary Committee to try to find out what were the plans, what were the hearings going to be like. And the way the week played out, on December 4th there was the hearing with the law professors, the first hearing before the Judiciary Committee, and on December 5th, the morning of December 5th, Speaker Pelosi announced the conclusion of the entire Judiciary Committee process because she announced that she was directing Chairman Nadler to draft articles of impeachment. So the conclusion of the whole process was already set. Then, after the close of business on the 5th, we learned from the staff that the committee had no plans other than a hearing on December 9th to hear from staffers who had prepared Hipsy committee reports. They had no plans to have other hearings no plans to hear from fact witnesses, no plans to do any factual investigation. So the president was given a choice of participating in a a process that was going to already have the outcome determined. The speaker had already said articles of impeachment are going to be drafted. And where there were no plans to hear from any fact witnesses, that's not due process. And that's why the president Declined to participate in that process because the Judiciary Committee had already decided they were going to accept an ex parte record developed in Manager Schiff's process, and there was no point in participating in that. So the idea that there was due process offered to the President is simply not accurate. The entire proceedings in the House from the time of the September 4th press conference until the Judiciary Committee began marking up articles of impeachment on December 11th lasted 78 days. It's the fastest investigatory process for a presidential impeachment in history. And for 71 days of that process, for 71 days of the hearings and the taking of deposition hearing testimony, the president was completely locked out. He couldn't be represented by counsel. He couldn't cross-examine witnesses. He couldn't present evidence. He couldn't present witnesses for 71 of the 78 days. That's not due process. And it goes to a point that Mr. Cipollone raised earlier. Why would you have a process like that? What does that tell you about the process? As we've pointed out a couple of times, cross-examination in our legal system is regarded as the greatest legal engine ever invented for the discovery of truth. It's essential. The Supreme Court has said in Goldberg versus Kelly, for any determination that's important, that requires determining facts, cross-examination has been one of the keys for due process. Why did they design a mechanism here where the president was locked out and denied the ability to cross-examine witnesses? It's because they weren't really interested in getting at the facts and the truth. They had a timetable to meet. They wanted to have impeachment done by Christmas, and that's what they were striving to do. Now as a slight shift in gears, I want to touch on one uh, last point before I yield to one of my colleagues. And that relates to the whistleblower. The whistleblower who we haven't heard that much about, who started all of this. The whistleblower we know from a letter that the inspector general of the intelligence community sent that he thought that the whistleblower had political bias. We don't know exactly what the political bias was because the inspector general testified in the House committees in an executive session, and that transcript is still secret. It wasn't transmitted up to the House Judiciary Committee. We haven't seen it. We don't know what's in it. We don't know what he was asked and what he revealed about the whistleblower. Now, you would think that before going forward with an impeachment proceeding against the President of the United States, that you would want to find out something about the complainant that had started all of it, because motivations, bias, reasons for wanting to bring this complaint, could be relevant. But there wasn't any inquiry into that. Recent reports, public reports, suggest that potentially the whistleblower was an intelligence community staffer who worked with then-Vice President Biden on Ukraine matters, which, if true, would suggest and even greater reason for wanting to know about potential bias or motive for the whistleblower. And at first, when things started, it seemed like everyone agreed that we should hear from the whistleblower, including Manager Schiff. I think we have what he said. But yes, we would love to talk directly with the whistleblower. We'll get the unfiltered testimony of that whistleblower. We don't need the whistleblower What changed? At first, Manager Schiff agreed we should hear the unfiltered testimony from the whistleblower. But then he changed his mind. And he suggested that it was because now we had the transcript. But the second clip there was from uh, September 29th, which was four days after the transcript had been released. But there was something else that came into play. And that was something that Manager Schiff had said earlier when he was asked about whether he had spoken to the whistleblower.
1: Uh, We have not spoken directly with the whistleblower. Uh, We would like to.
0: And it turned out that that statement was not truthful. Around October 2nd or 3rd, it was exposed that Manager Schiff's staff, at least, had spoken with the whistleblower before the whistleblower filed the complaint, and potentially had given some guidance some sort to the whistleblower. And after that point, it became critical to shut down any inquiry into the whistleblower. And during the House hearings, of course, Manager Schiff was in charge. He was chairing the hearings. And that creates a real problem from a due process perspective, from a search for truth perspective, because he was an interested fact witness at that point. He had a reason, since he had been caught out saying something that wasn't truthful about that contact, he had a reason to not want that inquiry. And it was he who ensured that there wasn't any inquiry into that. Now, this is relevant here, I think, because as you've heard from my colleagues, a lot of what we've heard over the past 23 hours, over the past three days, has been from Chairman Schiff. And he has been telling you things like what's in President Trump's head, what's in President Zelensky's head. It's all his interpretation of the facts and the evidence, trying to pull inferences out of things. And there's another statement that Chairman Schiff made that I think we have on video. But you admit it's uh, a circum, all you have right now is a circumstantial case. Uh, Actually, no, Chuck. Uh, I I can tell you that the case is more than that, uh, and I can't go into the particulars, but there is more than circumstantial evidence now. So, um, again, I think... So you have seen direct evidence of collusion? uh, I don't want to go into specifics, but I will say that there is evidence that is not circumstantial uh, and, uh, and is very much worthy of investigation. So that was in March of 2017 when Chairman Schiff as ranking member of HIPSI was telling the public, the American public, that he had more than circumstantial evidence through his position on HIPSI that President Trump's campaign had colluded with Russia. Now, of course, the Mueller report, as Mr. Sekulow pointed out, after $32 million and over 500 search warrants, or roughly 500 search warrants, Determined that there was no collusion that that wasn't true, and I, I, we wanted to point these things out simply because for this reason Chairman Schiff has made so much of the House's case about the credibility of interpretations that the House managers want to place on not hard evidence just but on inferences. They want to tell you what President Trump thought. They want to tell you, don't believe what Zelensky said. We can tell you what Zelensky actually thought. Don't believe what the other Ukrainians actually said about not being pressured. We can tell you what they actually thought. That it is very relevant to know whether the assessments of evidence he's presented in the past are accurate. And we would submit that they have not been, and that that is relevant for your consideration with that, I will yield to my colleague, Mr. Cipollone.
1: So Pat Philbin steps aside, and we now hear uh, Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, the man who began the presentation this morning and now resumes. Members of the Senate, I have good news. Just a few more minutes from us today. But I want to point out a couple of points. Number one, just to follow up on what Mr. Philbin just told you. Do you know who else didn't show up in the Judiciary Committee to answer questions about his report in the way Ken Starr did in the Clinton impeachment? Ken Starr was subjected to cross-examination by the President's counsel. Do you know who didn't show up in the Judiciary Committee? Chairman Schiff. He did not show up. He did not give Chairman Nadler the respect of appearing before his committee and answering questions from his committee. He did send his staff. but why didn't he show up? Another good question you should think about. Now, they've come here today, and they basically said, "Let's cancel an election over a meeting with the Ukraine, with Ukraine." And as my colleagues have shown, they failed to give you key facts about the meeting and lots of other evidence that they produced themselves. But let's talk about the meeting. They said it was all about an invitation to a meeting. If you look at the first transcript, at the first transcript, the president said to President Zelensky. When you're settled in and ready, I'd like to invite you to the White House. We'll have a lot of things to talk about, but we're with you all the way. And President Zelensky said, well, thank you for the invitation. We accept the invitation and look forward to the visit. Thank you again. Then, President, Zelensky got a letter on May 29th inviting him again to come to the White House. And then, going back to the transcript of the July 25th call, again a part of the call that they didn't talk to you about, President Trump said, whenever you would like to come to the White House, feel free to call. Give us a date and we'll work that out. I look forward to seeing you. President Zelensky replied, thank you very much. I would be very happy to come and would be happy to meet with you personally and get to know you better. I'm looking forward to our meeting and I also would like to invite you to visit Ukraine and come to the city of Kyiv, which is a beautiful city. We have a beautiful country, which would welcome you." Then he said, On the other hand, I believe on September 1, we will be in Poland. And we can meet in Poland, hopefully. Now, they didn't read you that part of the transcript, and they didn't tell you what happened. A meeting in Poland was scheduled. President Trump was scheduled to go to Poland. He was scheduled to meet with President Zelensky. What happened? President Trump couldn't go to Poland. Why? Because there was a hurricane in the United States, and he thought it would be better for him to stay here to help deal with the hurricane. So the vice president went. Why didn't they tell you that? Why didn't they tell you Pat Cipollone, presidential lawyer, White House lawyer, wrapping up the president's case for this day, he says. It's special coverage from NPR News. And had to be canceled for a hurricane. Why? So that was our first question that we asked you. You heard a lot of facts that they didn't tell you. Facts that are critical. (laughs) Facts that they know completely collapse their case on the facts now you heard a lot from them you're not going to hear facts from the president's lawyers they're not going to talk to you about the facts that's all we've done today and ask yourself ask yourself given the facts you heard today that they didn't tell you who doesn't want to talk about the facts who doesn't want to talk about the facts the American people paid a lot of money for those WGFF drugs. AH, of money this. WGFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello.